Hello, fellow dog-powered sports enthusiasts. This is Chelsea Murray, and you are listening to Positively Dog-Powered, a podcast that dives deep into the real world of positive reinforcement training and dog-powered sports. Hey, everybody. We're back for another episode of Positively Dog-Powered, and today I'm very excited about our guest, a very skilled trainer and certainly somebody who is not new to the podcast world, and we're going to talk about two big areas of concern when we head out on the trail with our dogs, which is arousal and excitability and how to manage it, as well as how to handle those trail distractions that are going to be out of our control. My guest today is professional dog trainer and podcaster, Sarah Strumming. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to talk about this stuff. Yeah. So before we get started, do you mind introducing yourself to our podcast listeners who might not know you? How did you get started in dogs and how did you get started in training? Sure. So I've been involved in dogs in some capacity for 25-ish years. I've been doing um, dog sports of dog agility and dog obedience for about that long. And I have been in the field of dog behavior for actually almost 20 years. And I got started, I think I was just obsessed with dogs, like from the time that I was born, like, I don't think this was a choice. Um, And I got really involved in training dogs when I was a teenager with, I had a border collie named Kelso, who was pretty severely dog aggressive, which is like so many of our origin stories. It's like that we had a dog that really needed help. And then we became the help that that dog needed. Um, And I think I saw dog agility on TV when I was like a tiny child, like seven or eight or something. And was like, that's for me. (laughs) um, Kind of worked towards it until, until I was doing it. So now I have um, the cognitive canine where I work as a behavior consultant. I'm a certified dog behavior consultant through the IAABC. I have a tiny baby puppy right now who's weighing in on some of the things that I'm going to say. Um, she's my newest addition. She's a border collie named Carson. And then I have two other border collies, Felix and Iggy. And I have an Icelandic sheepdog named Rhea as well. And I have a podcast called Cog Dog Radio. Which I'm a big fan of your podcast. And I'll be sure to include a link to it in our show notes. Because if you guys want to learn about behavior, training, and how to just generally support your dog, it's a really excellent resource. Thank you. So. I know one thing that you're really big into is kind of making sure that we're meeting the needs of our dogs, you know, and this is something that there have certainly been some hot topics on social media, you know, in the last year about enrichment and filling emotional cups kind of going both ways. Like, are we doing it too much? Are we not doing it enough? But obviously when we meet their needs and help them really Um, you know, on a daily basis, and then even just a monthly basis, you can really see that impact behavior in a positive way. So do you mind talking to us a little bit about, you know, looking at the dog in front of you, and then really trying to work towards meeting their needs and, and how you know if you're really doing that or not? For sure. It's, it's a cornerstone of my work for sure is looking at, I call it behavioral wellness. And how we know is essentially that all boils back down to well, are we seeing behaviors that are misplaced, that do not fit, that are too much, um, behaviors that maybe are natural and normal, but that 
are happening in the wrong place at the wrong time or maybe in too big of a way for us. Sometimes we look too much at those behaviors as being just capital P problems that we then need to modify when in reality, those behaviors just need a place to go. They're not going to be changed or, you know, maybe you can change them, but I like to think of behavior as kind of energy, like can neither be created nor destroyed. Like you, it has to go somewhere. And so when we look at the basic needs of the dog and start to really zero in on those needs and address them, we start to see those behaviors be less of a problem for everybody. So a really simple example might be that your terrier is digging up your garden beds. Well, terrier is going to terrier, right? The dog is digging up the garden beds because deep inside him, his terrierness says that he should. And maybe if we enroll the terrier in barn hunt classes and we buy a sandbox that's specifically for him and we bury all kinds of interesting things in that sandbox, like rabbit pelts and maybe bones stuffed full of delicious food and things like that, maybe he starts digging there instead. And maybe when he comes home from barn hunt class, he's so fulfilled that he doesn't need to take to your garden. And addressing problems in that way has been really, really successful for me. And I don't know about you, Chelsea, but like, I thrive on that. Like, for me as a professional, when I can like stamp case closed on something, like nothing feels better to me than that. And that's not happening if I don't actually address the dog's needs. So it's truly selfish. I need to, I just, I need every case to go well. And so therefore we look at, we look at the needs, but how do we know we're doing it right? The dog's behavior tells us. If the dog is sleeping well, he's eating well, he's not having conflict with his housemates or with you, he's he's doing okay his needs are are then met and it's um Ali Bender and Emily Strong wrote a book called Canine Enrichment for the Real World and they do a really really good job of like putting this into a systematic process like they are spreadsheet people we love them for that I'm not I'm kind of a like holistic look at the whole thing let's tweak this let's tweak that like let's have a conversation let's like um, sit down in a circle and talk about it kind of person. And I think that, um, so they've done this brilliant job for people kind of new to looking at things that way be to be successful and like totally hitting out of the park. So if you haven't talked to them yet, I would recommend it. And if people haven't read that book, I'd recommend it. But um, for me, it's like dogs weren't actually designed to be our couch ornaments they have dogness. And for me, meeting the needs is about allowing them to express dogness. I love that dogness. It's so true though. You know, I think from a professional standpoint, a lot of our clients that want us to come into the home and work on skills with the dog, or maybe remove some behaviors from that dog's skill set. You know, a lot of times the first thing we have to address is what does this dog's daily routine look like? And of course, we're looking for what behaviors are getting rehearsal time, what behaviors are getting reinforcement, but we're also looking at what the dog gets to do, right? That is more dog. Um, I think that a lot of times in the city environment, we're asking a lot of our dogs. You know, we're asking them to handle a lot that 
depending on what breed they are too, you know, is very unnatural for them. But I think bringing more outlets into their life that allow them to do what they were bred to do or what they really truly enjoy, you do start to see that huge behavior shift with, with them in the home. We recently brought home, uh, she just turned one, um, but she's still a puppy. She definitely has that puppy energy and her needs, even though I've had this breed, Malamutes, for my whole life, she's very different than the others that I've had. And so one thing that I did when you were talking about spreadsheets, I made a spreadsheet because it helped me get my ideas organized in my head. And I looked at each day and recorded what all the dogs were getting for training, what they were getting for enrichment, for physical activity, free time. And I tracked all of that in relation to some behavior markers so that I could make sure that as we brought her into the home and I made sure all the relationships in the home were nice and how I wanted them to be, you know, that each dog was getting their needs met. And I I think that that becomes more challenging as we have multiple dogs in the home, right? Because oftentimes it's like, well, gosh, if I have to meet each dog's individual needs and they're all going to be different and I have to, you know, track different things for each dog and, and evaluate how that dog is, um, you know, behavior wise and emotionally, that can become pretty complicated. Oh my gosh. And then you become a whiteboard person. You become the person that has like the white, like you're like a zookeeper. You've got a whiteboard on the wall with everybody's name and like what everybody has done and what everybody needs to be working on and all of that business. And it's like, I love that you did that for this dog. And that is, that's the kind of stuff that like, I, I really dig into with my clients. We talk about what are the behavior markers? Like, what do we need to see change? Okay. Let's shift this variable. Let's see how that changes. Let's shift this other variable. Or sometimes we will shift all the variables and then we will we'll see big changes and then we'll kind of peel back, okay, what are the hardest things for you to do? Can we, can we lay off those, not do those as often? And do we maintain those behavior markers? And sometimes after a period of time of the dog's needs actually being met, you can. Like you can be a little bit lax in some areas once the dog is no longer at a deficit. When the dog comes in a deficit, you have to kind of go above and beyond for a while before you can kind of get back to a, a real life um, with your dog. And yeah, when you've got multiples and they're all got different stuff going on, <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> I think too, as you know, human beings, it can give us a little bit of empathy for our dogs. Once we start being more mindful about meeting their needs and we see how it can impact their behavior, then I think when they're having a hard time, I think it's like, okay, you're right. I haven't, you know, held up my end of the agreement and gotten you what you need today versus, you know, their problematic behavior then causing stress for us humans. Yeah. And maybe some empathy for yourself as well. Like maybe if you are sleep deprived or haven't eaten a decent meal today or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, maybe you've got a headache. Maybe you've got like a chronic stressor situation in your life, like having a little bit of um, just giving yourself a little bit of grace on that. Like when you finally understand like, oh, actually we're not robots like actually all of these things matter to every living creature um I think it allows us to be just kinder and easier on ourselves as well as on our dogs yeah absolutely you know meeting needs and kind of 
trying to find ways to fulfill my dogs is actually what got me started in dog powered sports, you know, like 13, 14 years ago when we got our first Malamute and it was, I was not new to dogs, but that was my first kind of entrance into the breed. And I was like, oh, you're a little different. Okay. Let's try and figure out some ways that we can, you know, get these needs met. And so we started dabbling and, you know, backpacking a little more with the dogs. We started dabbling and bike touring with them. And it really is cool once you can find that activity that brings them so much joy and really makes everybody happy that you can enjoy together. Um, now as you know, I've kind of shifted from just the recreational level to a little bit more serious and, and going to some races, you know, we can start to see a variety of uh, new behaviors maybe that pop up in those dogs when they do really love it, right? If they're really excited about something, we can start to see that excitement be, uh, you know, shift into over arousal with the dogs and we can start to get new behaviors that pop up as that arousal increases. So as we're looking at our dogs that really love this sport and really thrive in this sport that might be seeing some of this over arousal, you know, I know with agility, um, which you're into quite a bit, arousal is, you know, not a stranger to you or over arousal. Um, so how do you start to kind of look at the dog in front of you and figure out if this is too much arousal and how do you then start to, you know, dial it back a bit while still keeping that love and passion that they have for it. Yeah. So a few things that you mentioned that I'll touch on. One is that, right. When we provide them with something that is extremely fulfilling for them, it is cute to me that we then are like bothered by the fact that they then have feelings about it. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I'm like, you're, you're a Malamute and I have given you an opportunity to pull and run and no, but you have to be calm about this. Like, I mean, that, no shenanigans, please. Yeah, none of this. None of that. Yeah. <laughs> so especially with my border collies, border collies are, um, you know, they certainly don't like come out of the box ready for dog agility. Like that's not actually what they were designed to do for the last hundred plus ish years. But um, agility does fulfill them in a lot of ways. It fulfills their need to um, be be kind of challenged cognitively and, and physically at the same time. Yeah. And so I when I get a young border collie, like I'm just expecting that their feelings about agility are going to be really big. And everything I do from the beginning is with that expectation versus my Icelandic sheepdog, um, completely different situation. I didn't expect her to naturally want to do dog agility. And so the way that I raised her was based on that. And the way that I've trained her was based on that. So I think number one, it's really important for us to recognize that they don't have any control over their own lives pretty much. Yeah. And when we give them this thing that really, really matters to them, it isn't fair for us to give them that thing when they are popping off and having shenanigans and then one day change the rules on them. Mm. And that is what people do. That's what I see people do yeah. is that, you know, they, 
they build a dog up that doesn't need to be built. Number one, that happens a lot of the time. Um, and then they don't teach them any kind of emotional self-regulation at all until they are a problem. Uh -huh. Then they try to teach it to them, you know, through oftentimes through correction or they just try to override it like with the reinforcers. Well, I'm just going to feed you all the way up until the ring gate as long as I can. And then we'll go in. So for me, it's, if you're doing, if you got the dog to do the thing, probably they're going to want to do the thing. And probably you should be talking to them about controlling themselves from the beginning. If you haven't done that and you are now in the space where they don't know how to control themselves. Now you do have to peel back and you have to find other ways to meet their needs while you build back up their ability to control themselves around this thing that you've allowed them to have all these feelings about. And something that I say a lot is that you're, you're responsible for those feelings. You are the person because you were the one that puts them that put them in the situation where they grew those feelings. And a lot of times in my sport of dog agility, you made the feelings. Like they didn't come out of the womb. Like a Malamute on some level comes out of the womb want having those feelings about pulling and running. And the border collie doesn't really come out of the womb like knowing what a tunnel is or knowing what jumping is. And so if you put all of those feelings in them, it is now your responsibility to help them to control those feelings. And I, it, it really works best for us if we do that from the start instead of having to do it later. Because when you have to do it later, then the human gets punished because the human doesn't get as much access to their activity. And then I find that people kind of resist those training plans. I feel like I completely went off down a rabbit hole. So oh no, but that was perfect. <laughs> that was perfect because because when we're thinking about, I mean, a lot of people, not all, but a lot of people that get into dog powered sports have dogs that want to go, right? Like all of the dogs want to go. They might not all have that natural instinct to pull. Um, but you know probably no shocker to you that often comes pretty naturally for a lot of the dogs. Um, but they have that need to go. And so of course people put in puppy foundations from a young age to start to get them ready for harness. But once we figure out that the dog loves it, you know, that's when we really need to make sure that we're being mindful about those emotions with our dog powered sports, you know, unlike agility where you have to maybe create ringside or crate in a building, you know, oftentimes our dogs are either crated in the cars or they're on, you know, tethers or tie outs on the cars. Um, and they have to sit and watch all the exciting things happening around them too, which is really challenging. And for a lot of dogs, you know, the second they see you grab their harness, they see you put the bike on the car, they see, you know, they're getting into the car and going to a trail. And so all of these things can become basically triggers for this excitement to increase because they know what's going to happen, right? Like they, they know all yeah. these things that lead up to the sport. So as you're raising your puppies and you're starting to see kind of those little things click with them and they're starting to get excited because they know what's about to happen. Is that when you then go into your training plan and start working on exercises to kind of manage that excitement before it becomes too much? So I think of everything as a kind of swinging pendulum. And so, and I like the pendulum to just hover in the middle, essentially. So if the pendulum is really far over to the side of the dog doesn't care a lot about a lot of stuff, then I'm going to do things to bring those feelings out. But if the 
pendulum is swinging towards the, I care a lot and I'm having a lot of big anticipatory behavior that I'm going to be taking action to swing that pendulum back the other direction. I certainly have certain expectations with the dogs that I buy intentionally for the games that I do. I'm always watching them to see if I'm right. I'm not just deciding, well, this is what their path will look like. I'm always watching them. But one of the things that I like to do, especially with um, young border collies or like any young dog who's likely to get those big anticipatory feelings about something, because border collies get anticipatory feelings about everything. They're like, ooh, you're going to go in the office now. I know, I know. It's the office. The office is boring. We all, we just lay down in here, but they just like to be right. Like I, that, and I mean, I feel it. That's exactly how I am. Like they just like to be right. So I chronically make sure they're wrong. Like if they are sliding down the hall into the office, I'm like, oh, you know, I forgot something upstairs. I like, it's just anytime their behavior, their anticipatory behavior is big, they're wrong. And I just try to do that in life. Um, and people are probably thinking I'm a jerk right now, but like, honestly, what starts to happen is they just chill out. They're just like, yeah. oh no, like I, I connect the dots wrong all the time. So I'm just going to watch for, for my cues. When it comes to the sports, we make them right all the time. Cause we want to go in, like they start dragging you towards the ring. It needs to be somebody else's turn. It's their turn to do a downstay actually. Too bad. Um, you know, things like that versus like Raya, my Icelandic, if she's dragging me to the ring, we're going. We're going in and we're gonna now we're gonna run agility. If she's air scenting at that dog that's walking down the hall, um, okay, I guess it's time for you to lay down on the cot and take in the environment a little bit more then. Like she's she's right, like I make her right in those situations, and that's just about the fact that she has you know her feelings go different directions and so I would be thinking about it in life from the beginning and I'm always thinking about what does my dog actually need to do and how am I going to teach them to do it so if they needed to be on a tie out on my car and they needed to do that calm I would make sure they knew how to do that before they knew how fun that thing was and that's essentially the same thing I do in agility you learn how to walk next to me through a crowd. You learn how to do a downstay. You learn how to do a nose, a sustained nose target. You learn how to do all of these life skill things before you know that, that, that beyond that ring gate is all your wildest dreams. Like I, because that's how they do start to feel about it. And they're very serious about it. I don't even think they enjoy it, to be honest. Like that's a whole other can of worms that we could go into like I don't even think it's about that I think it's a need not a, like a wish um so if I do start to see those little anticipatory behaviors yeah I'm gonna totally change something and I do like to think of it as anticipatory and not just arousal because I think that when we talk about arousal um I think there's a little bit of a misconception around it that like it's either that it's like the three bears. It's like not enough, just right, too much. And I, I just think it's way more complicated than that. Yeah. And so um, I tend not to talk about it in terms of not enough, just right, too much. I instead try to look at my behaviors. Are these behaviors anticipatory? 
So that's first question. If, if the, you know, if we're in a flow chart and the answer to that is yes, then my next question is, is it a behavior I like? If the answer is yes, then, then I allow that that anticipatory behavior to then access the thing. And if the answer is no, it's not a behavior I like, or it's a behavior that's not healthy, or it's a behavior that's not working in this environment, then I need to teach them another skill and insert that skill here. And I'm probably going to need to break it down because they probably have too big of feelings about it um, to, to be asked to do it, right? Like the dog maybe can do a sit, stay for his food bowl, but certainly could not be chained to the truck without screaming. Like th there's a world of difference in between there, right? Like you, I think that there's also misconceptions, especially in agility that, doing things like sitting and waiting at doors and sitting and waiting at food bowls like that, that's all you need to do. And the dog will perfectly control itself <laughs> in, in the agility ring. And I, <laughs> I wish that were true, but that's not true. <laughs> A little more complicated than that. And I think that that idea of like, right, like if something has gone wrong and that behavior is not productive, not safe, not functional in that environment, and we then need to go back to the drawing board of like, what else do I want to insert here? What else is a better behavior that I can then train? I think for trainers or people, even hobby trainers that have been doing this for a very long time, it's very easy for us to take this really big concept and split it down into lots of small pieces where we can then help our dog be successful. But I think what a lot of times people that might be new to, you know, formal training might not realize is that a lot of those baby steps you know, they're going to take a long time. They happen in a different environment. They happen in an environment that looks absolutely nothing like that final environment that we need to be in. Oh yeah. I mean, getting it out of context to work on it. So, so important. And then easing back into your context and paying really close attention to what I call pre-errors. Mm -hmm. So like maybe my dog, um, you know, like one of my things that I do is I use eye contact as kind of a check, like a little check-in situation of like, when I release you out the car, you should offer me eye contact. And then we're going to start walking towards the building. And when we get to the door, you should offer me eye contact. And then we'll go in and you should offer it to me again when we go in the building. And the dog that is giving it to me but it's not, but there's a little latency there. They're looking around first. I'm going to call that a pre-error and I'm going to go, okay, you aren't ready for me to make this harder until that pre-error. Mm -hmm. So getting, becoming a really observant student of your dog's behavior is going to be required here. If you actually want to, you know, build these calm behaviors that you're interested in. And sometimes you might want to do like an easy behavior in like an interim. So, and this is something that we don't want to get attached to. Like you want to keep building your other behaviors, but what, I, what that might mean is like, okay, well, can the dog be tied to the truck and be given a frozen raw bone? And will he chew that attached to the truck? So that would be like a question. I think there's plenty of dogs who would not, who are really into bones. Like, right. Yeah. There's plenty of dogs who are like, what is wrong with you? This is not what I'm interested in right now. Like this isn't the motivation that I'm after. The motivation I'm after is running and pulling and asking them to switch into that other desire, um, kind of adjust what they might be seeking in that moment 
that is emotional self-regulation. It's not just a pacifier. It is, mm -hmm. it requires emotional self-regulation to kind of downshift and eat something, which is why I use eating a lot also as a check. Yep. The border collies are really good at just like chipmunking the food too. So you have to pay attention um, <laughs> because they learn that they're like, if I don't take this, I don't get to keep going, but I don't actually want it. So I'm going to put it in my cheek. And that's, Hysterical. I mean, I'm sure you're like, when I say border collies, like that's just the breed I have the most experience with, but any dog that is really driven and has really big feelings about stuff is probably going to do all of these same things that I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, and so we can't, you can teach them. And I really strongly recommend that everybody teach them, but little interim things you can do really the simplest interim thing you can ever do is like, can you eat instead of doing that rather than can you sit and then I'll feed you for sitting? They don't want your food. So just asking them to eat instead of doing this, whatever this thing is, um, is kind of where I will begin with teaching them emotional self-regulation. I'm doing it with my puppy constantly. My puppy, um, if she gets into like any semblance of border collie stalking mode, looking at one of my other dogs, I ask her to disengage and come eat. Huh. And so far, easy for her to do. Ask somebody whose border collie has really well-established stalking behaviors, how easy it is for them to snap out of it and eat. Yeah. It's usually next to impossible so I don't want to get there like I don't want to be at a place where you can't do it so it's literally just practicing that downshift it's practicing come out of that mindset and into this one we don't do that a lot with like I'm sure that you attach a dog to a bike and you're like let's go there's no like okay now uh emotionally regulate come back and have a snack like <laughs> if you stop and take a break that's one thing but like yeah. no once you're doing it you're not and unless you're using food rewards in agility which a lot of people aren't a lot of people are using toys and you're not using food rewards when you're running in a trial you're also not doing it there so using food intelligently like rather than trying to use it to reinforce your behaviors use access to the thing the dog wanted in the first place to reinforce your behaviors but ask them if they can eat as this as a skill of emotional self-regulation and i think that's so important too because i mean even when we're talking about training and i think a lot of people like okay we've got a dog that maybe we're tethering to the car and they're screaming right because they know that they're going to get to do the thing and they can't wait to go do the thing right but in that moment, if you think, okay, well, I'd really love for the dog to just like chill out. Can you lay down? Can you be quiet? Can you hang out and wait your turn? Yes, that's a behavior of closing your mouth and laying down, but there's a lot more to do there besides just teaching those two behaviors, right? We have to look at that emotional component. And if the dog is already switched over into that mode of excitement and getting ready to go do the thing, asking them to come out of that, like yeah. that downgrading, that downshift is not a skill that a lot of people practice. A lot of people don't practice that. They practice teaching the downstay, right? And that's right. very different. <laughs> Chelsea, and the downstay is good. And please train your downstays. And we love a downstay. And also the actual skill of bring your brain from here to here is what we don't practice. So times that you can practice that though, because also 
you if you just go do this at the trailhead, you're probably going to fail and be frustrated because the dog's 100%. never been asked to do it. So I have a program called Happy Crating, which is just teaching dogs to relax in confinement. And there's a lot of stuff in Happy Crating that's basically bring your brain from here to here. Like in the context of you're in confinement, I want you to choose to downshift. And mm-hmm. at first, I'm going to make it really easy for you. And then I'm going to progressively make it harder and harder. Um, and so that's one situation. I also like if the dog, if tethering is going to be part of the, their life, which I also utilize tethers. Um, like I use a lot of stationing, but I use a tether with station when I don't right. trust the dog station. Right. Um, teaching them to self-regulate on a tether away from your big, exciting trailhead situation. What a really big, smart thing to do. Yeah, like today I tethered the puppy and put all my dogs on a downstay next to her and just I walked away from her. And it was because I needed to go through a gate to put the trash out. And I don't want the dogs to run out the gate, right? So I my adult dogs can do their downstay and wait. She has no idea about that. So I tethered her. And the first thing that happens is she's pissed. She's a little vocalized. She's like, where are you going? What about, this is terrible. I'm tied up. And I just like slowly put the trash out and I'm just slowly doing my things and I'm not looking at her and I'm not. And then I see her just sit back and she's looking at the other dogs and she's like, this is bullshit, right? Sorry. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but (laughs) (laughs) and that's the moment when I walked back to her and I let her go and I just went and it doesn't need to last 20 minutes. I just saw you make a choice to bring your brain from here to there. And now we can get back to our day. And there's little moments like that in your dog's day. I promise that you can work on it if you are really keenly observing them and you're able to see the shift from here to there. Because if your dog is like, in a really high state a lot of the time like I know the dog part sports um a lot of German short hair pointers and other um kind of hunt point retrieve types of dogs do really really well with that stuff yeah um it's like my number one recommendation for people who are like hi I have a GSP that will not go on a decompression walk and I'm like I know so here's what you have to do (laughs) bike jaw to the trail (laughs) then you can switch to your long line and have a hope of the dog actually thing right a lot of those dogs they're just buzzing the second they get up and so you might have a hard time seeing the downshift because they're shifting from like 10 to 9 rather than you know my puppy today shifted from I don't know like 4 to 3 or like 5 to 3 that's easy to see it's not easy to see the German shorter pointer that's literally vibrating take a breath and like lick their lips and then go back to vibrating. But like before they went back there, that's the moment that you catch and reward. And it's, you know, I, I have to hand it to people. Like it's, it's hard. I'm not saying this is like, well, simply observe better. Like, no, it's just pay attention. You got to pay attention. You will start to see it. You will screw it up. I screw up all the time. It's fine. Keep trying. Yeah. I'm really glad too, that you mentioned that it is that shift down and it doesn't matter how small it might be, because I think oftentimes people think, 
well, I want the dog to chill out and they want that whole shift, but that whole shift might not be possible in the beginning. In fact, it usually is not. And so we need to look for better, right? Just the smallest indication that something's improving, that the brain is shifting, right? And then we can reinforce that. And the more you can get in the habit of doing that, and the more your dog gets in practice of doing that, the easier it's going to be for them to not only practice that downshift, but to be able to take kind of bigger steps down that that scale of zero to 10. Yeah, it's funny how approximations are important in everything you do yeah. in dog training. They're pretty powerful. I like them. We'll keep them around. <laughs> so these are things, of course, that with lots of practice from both our dogs and us as owners and trainers, we can it's kind of in our control, right? It's something that we can work on. It's something that we are a part of, but not all things dog powered are in our control. And that's kind of the other topic that I want to talk to you about is handling things out on the trail. Um, you know, as somebody that uses public multi-use spaces, there are always times where we're going to encounter other bikers, other dogs, other people, sometimes even horses on the trail. And so we not only need to be really mindful about other users of the trail for their safety and our dog's safety, um, but also so that we can keep using, you know, keep having the ability to use these trails. Of course, one of our biggest skills we have to teach is on by, which is ignore whatever this thing is and keep moving past it. But for many dogs, as you can imagine, that's a skill that's pretty complex and it takes a while for us to really master with our dogs when they are moving quickly and they're excited. And, you know, maybe that other distraction on the trail is an off-leash dog, which is very hard for many dogs to ignore. Um, So we can be mindful about choosing our trails and going at certain times of the day. Um, But some of these distractions might be counterproductive towards our training plans, you know, if it's something that negatively impacts the dog. So I know for you going on off-leash hikes, maybe long line hikes with dogs, you know, you're encountering a lot of those same trail distractions. So when you're taking your dogs out, you know, how do you kind of balance respecting their ability to use the trail with you know, potentially regulations that might be in place to, you know, making sure that you're setting your dog up for success in these situations that are out of our control. Really important, right? And I, that on-by skill is really sexy and I really envy it. Um, But also (laughs) it's, I think that the reason you're able to be successful with it is actually the speed at which you are asking the dog to move. I think we really... When I'm plugging along on my two feet (laughs) down a hiking trail, I'm not going very fast. Um, And I can use running though to reinforce my dogs. And I do, and I teach them all to run on cues so that I can cue them to once they do me that favor of passing something by. Certainly this is all a training process, right? So um from the beginning, I'm asking them to do that downshift all the time. If I see things start to come up a little bit too high, the first thing I'm going to do when they're young is we're just going to all come over and do a group scatter feed out of the grass. And then that graduates eventually to a group downstay. 
I can reward those things with telling them to run down the trail. When it comes to, so like obviously number one, skills. It, it takes a lot of skills. You got to teach them a lot of skills. In order for them to get that kind of freedom, they have to have a lot of skills. I take that really seriously and I work really hard on those skills because I want them to have that freedom. I also hate holding leashes and long lines. And so it's all, it all comes back to, it's about me and what I want. What I want is for them to be off leash. So even my, you know, I think people say that I, I cheat because I have border collies. Um, again, they don't really come trained. They do not come usually wanting to like hunt uh-huh. in the ones I think that that's that definitely makes my life easier they do want to chase though so if a deer flushes and I, they're going to want to run after it that's definitely true um and I've had a few border collie clients that had what I would label an obsession with certain birds too so that's a thing but my little Icelandic she has all the same skills that my border collies have and it just, yeah, it was harder to teach her some of them and it was easier to teach her others. The hardest thing for her to do is to downgrade, far, downshift far enough that she's not barking anymore. But I can recognize <laughs> that she's still barking, but she has brought it down several notches and I can still reinforce. When it comes to other people that are using the trail, it is really, really, really important for us that we do not cause a problem for somebody else. Yeah. I take that very seriously at the same time that I accept that other people will cause a problem for me. This is a hard one, right? Yeah. People don't like this. people don't like this answer, but the truth is the general dog owning public is not going to be able to call their dog. So you yelling, call your dog and then getting pissed that they can't only ruins your day. doesn't ruin anybody else's. They're not going to be able to call their dog. They're not going to abide by leech laws. They are not going to recognize that you have pulled your dogs over and put them in a downstay and probably they should leash up. When they do, it's beautiful and you should thank them, but it's a, it's a rare situation. So what I like to tell everybody to do and what I do is I just have skills and tools for dealing with these encounters. So when off-leash dogs are approaching mine and I can tell that this is, nobody's gonna do anything about this. Um, if my dogs are on leash in that situation, which is rare, I would often unclip. Like, I don't think they should have to stay on. I'm not sure what I would do in, in a situation where like I'm on a bicycle and dogs attached to me, like that's really complicated. Yeah. Um, I probably wouldn't just unclip, and like see what happens. But um, I carry spray shield with me, which is just a can of citronella spray that can ward off dogs that I think are not safe and can also break up an altercation if an altercation does happen. That's one of my best tools. I sometimes throw handfuls of food at people's dogs and they'll stop and start eating it. And then the people will come and collect their dogs. Um, Sometimes I will, I will speak to the dog and get their attention on me. And like, if I, like if a super wiggly, sweet, like golden retriever puppy or something is running up to my group, I have one dog that's probably not going to be nice to this sweet angel baby that doesn't need to have a bad experience. And I'll call them over to me and I'll just hang on to them while I wait for the owner to come collect this dog. Mm-hmm. 
there's all of those things that you can do. I do think that the primary thing is just put the tools in your belt because the public is not going to wake up tomorrow and be good about controlling their dogs. It's just not going to happen. And it does ruin your day when you just get pissed at them. What, what do you, if you, you've got a Malamute attached to a bike and somebody's, um, sweet baby golden retriever is running up to you. Like, what's your move, Chelsea? Like, I'm actually curious. Yeah. You know, I think it's my, my go-to for, if I am hiking them, long line walking them is very different, right? Because I'm moving slower. My brain just generally has more time to process. You know, when you are bike during with your dog, depending on the breed that you have, you're traveling anywhere from eight miles an hour, you know, up into 20 miles an hour, like your ability to just have time to process, you know, what does that dog's body language look like? Right. Um, does that person have the ability to call their dog? Do I see another person? Right. Like we just don't have time for that. So generally what I am doing is I am gauging. I, I have a, you know, preset idea because you have to, right. I I need to go into auto mode instead of assessing mode. Um, and I will have a different plan for each dog that I have with me based on their skill set. You know, what does this dog's on by look like? How have we practiced this? What distractions on the trail have they been able to successfully pass so my plan for my eight-year-old who's got a really good on by right is going to be very different than my one-year-old who thinks everything moving is exciting and surely everyone's here to say hi to her right like my expectations of what that dog can do in the moment are very different so I do carry spray shield. I, when I go out with my dogs, I have it strapped to my wrist. Um, all of our clips, you know, on the dogs, I could get to easily, but generally speaking, if it's a narrow trail, if I see something pop up quickly and I don't know what it is, generally I'm going to stop to give myself time to assess when I've got a really nice open trail that maybe is wider. I can see what's coming from further away. Then that will be my decision of, do I need to stop and move my dog over to the side so that we're not traveling super fast? Or is that something my dog has successfully passed in the past? And in that case, I'm going to, you know, cue them on by. So I think for me, especially when we're moving faster, when we're not just canny hiking or running can across, when I am on a bike, a rig, a sled, that's when I'm really kind of gauging how narrow is this trail and how well can I see? And where is realistically this dog's skill set for their on by behavior? Yeah, it does. It always comes back to the skills and what skills do I have that I can use? Because it's just not about people, other people being better. I think there's a, too much discourse about, well, I yell at the person to blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, and how does that work for you? Because it, historically it has not worked well for me. Um, and I actually love teaching dogs uh, to pass. I think that pulling over is actually really hard for them. And is a lot of times where you have to begin is the pullover. Right. But it winds up being, and and that's because it's easier for you to manage them and make sure that Mm -hmm. they don't do anything bad, but it is harder for them to do. 100%. 100% because then they have to just slowly watch the thing get closer and closer as that excitement builds, that anticipation is building, right? 
it's, it is hard. And for dogs that are already in a more amped up state because they're doing this, you know, high arousal, exciting activity that can be even harder for some dogs. So I think being proactive, even about choosing that trail, that's going to, you know, offer you the ability to pass at a bigger distance can also be helpful in those early training days for the sport. Totally. With uh, Rhea, Rhea went through a pretty big, um, she had some pretty big responses to horseback riders. It was kind of her one big thing that was hard for us. And I absolutely selected wide open logging roads as opposed to our windy like forested trails for a long time to make sure that I could see it was coming. I could assess the situation. I could change direction if I wanted to. Like it just gives you, yeah, picking your spots kind of feels like it should go without saying, but it doesn't. Like we have to reiterate it and keep kind of bringing it up. And then I just, I also teach my dogs two separate cues. I teach them um, it's a friend, which means approach and say hello. And I do that whenever it's kind of inevitable. Like if the, if we're going to have a greeting, that's what I tell them. And then if I can avoid the greeting, I tell them not now. And I just start doing that early, early on, like they're on leash and I'm just saying not now and just ushering them on. Um, and those not now feels like you're on by, it's like, you're just not, you're, that's not for you. Keep going, keep going. And I love reinforcing it with a cue to go faster for sure. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think that can be the other struggle too, is, you know, when we were talking earlier about arousal and talking about getting the dog to kind of downshift from more excitement to a little less excitement. That's something I practice, especially, you know, right now we're in off season because it's summer and it's boiling hot, but that's something that I practice, you know, in my off season a lot. And any other time I'm going out with my dogs on the trail, you know, long lines, hiking, that kind of thing. So that when they see distractions on the trail, hopefully that then becomes habit for them to downshift, even if we're moving faster while bike touring. Um, but I think something that's challenging is that when we are running can across or we are bike touring, we're not feeding in the middle of a run. So it's not right. like I could stop my bike, grab the, the line off my bike, move the dog over and pay them for disengaging. Right. So that's a skill that I need to practice outside of the trail where they are getting that food reinforcement. And then in the moment I'm seeing, okay, do I have enough space where maybe I can move you over and cue you to sniff? right? Cue you to go explore. Are we close to water? Maybe I can take a break, move over, let you dip in the water, right? I'm trying to find other things in that environment in that moment that I can then use as reinforcers um, or again, use to keep the dog from becoming too frustrated that that other dog is, you know, getting closer or passing us that we've taken a break. Yeah. Really smart to always be thinking of the variety of reinforcement that you have access to all of the time. Yeah. And practicing using it in different environments so that you can then use it, right. You can cue your dog to go do something else. Um, and that your dog is like, Oh yeah, I, I, I enjoy that. I enjoy sniffing. I enjoy, you know, moving off the trail and going to do the thing. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that ultimately, you know, no matter how fast we're moving, there are a lot of similarities in in the sense of having a game plan ahead of time right? Making Mm -hmm. sure that you know what you're going to do for each dog and realistically what each dog is capable of doing and what's going to be the safest for them. So I think that that is kind of the same. And I I do 
I know you said a lot of people don't like your answer. I actually love your answer because you're taking a situation that could be stressful, could be dangerous, and you are turning it into a situation where you have all the tools, right? You're like, how am I going to set my dog up for success? Um, How am I going to safely navigate this situation? And I think viewing it from that frame of mind, instead of just all these people with their off-leash dogs, you know, and getting all stressed about it is the smarter plan. It's like, do you want solutions or do you want to complain? Yeah. And if you want to complain, fine, but talk to me when you want solutions. And the, just taking it upon myself that the behavior of others is outside of my control, but my behavior is in my control. That is actually really empowering. And so I feel less stressed actually with my dogs in the world after taking on that mindset, as opposed to the, I'm going to yell at this person. I'm going to, you know, they're going to ruin my day. I can't believe people are so rude. Like it's just, everybody's out there trying to just enjoy their dogs and they don't probably know that they're ruining your day. And, you know, with exceptions, I can get irritated with people, <laughs> uh, of course. <laughs> but generally speaking, like just saying, actually, this is within my control. Here's what's in, within my control. I haven't had any problems. And I also just feel better and less stressed yeah. about it. For sure. 100%. Well, we talked about quite a bit filling our dogs up and making sure we're meeting needs, excitability, and how to kind of think about our training for our dogs so that we're setting them up uh, for success without hopefully too much anticipatory excitement and handling trail distractions. Are there any kind of parting words that you want to leave our listeners with as we head out for today? I think just that life happens out there. Like if you're going to get out there and you're going to have a big world and your dog is going to have a big world, stuff is going to happen. And the obsession with keeping everything like perfectly safe and perfectly fine traps us in our houses. And it is good. I really firmly believe it is best for you and it's best for your dog to not be trapped in your house. (laughs) So I agree. agree. Stuff is going to happen out there. I've had terrible things happen out there and I still go and still really benefit in my life. And my dogs really benefit in my life from just being out on the trail doing stuff and don't let the fear of those things going wrong, stop you from meeting your needs and your dog's needs things will go wrong. Just kind of accept it right now. Decide what you're going to do about it for the things that you have a reasonable ability to predict and go forward. I love that. That's great. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. I think that a lot of people will get a ton of benefit out of this and hopefully it'll help them start to shift their mindset about their dogs and maybe some problem behaviors and their training plans so that we can get everybody moving forward a little more smoothly. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much, Chelsea. I hope that you guys are enjoying these episodes. And if you're looking to stay connected, don't forget about our social media channels. You can find us at Positively Dog Powered on Facebook and over on Instagram.
And if you'd like to get a little more information, behind the scenes updates, some training tips and videos, and even early access to great episodes like this one, you can join our Patreon community. For as little as $1 a month, you can help support this show so that we can keep bringing you training content right into your speakers. So, until next time, have fun chasing tails on the trails. Thank you.